You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Modern Web Podcast. I am your host, Rob O'Sell. I'm an architect at this.labs. Today, we're very excited to sit down and talk about the wonderful world of releasing libraries versioning and everything to do with that with Mark Erickson. Mark is the Redux is a Redux maintainer, um, one of the ones you've probably seen on Twitter, and senior front end engineer at replay.io. Mark, how are you doing? Doing pretty well. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for being here. Now, it's so funny because as we were starting to do this, um, I, you know, I was attracted to a thread that you posted on Twitter back in April, I think it was, mm -hmm. when you were first sort of going through this process of I don't know, how do you describe it? Modernizing the, the release strategy of Redux or, or just like enabling Mod the SIM compatibility? Modern like modernizing is fair. Um, you know, trying to figure out like what are the pieces that need to be included in the package and all the bundle formats and the contents of those bundles and how do you configure all the build tooling and the package published contents so that other tools like Webpack and Beat and Rollup and ES Build and TypeScript and everything else all actually know how to find the right contents inside. Yes, and and what what struck me as this had come up is that I have seen this discussion on Twitter. It's not always at the front of Twitter. It's not in the revolving set of topics that that Twitter gets on sometimes. But like I feel like it's been a consistent thread that's gone through it. And one of the things that um, on our team is that we had released a pretty small um, package, open source package. And when the team went to officially release it to the public, they said the exact same thing, which mm -hmm. is to say, what is the correct way to set this up to be deployed? I mean, we know we can put it on NPM and that's fine. And it, we can put it in with certain formats and it'll work for us. But what is the correct way? Because we know there are different formats and what what do we need to do in the year of our Lord 2023? <laughs> and we discovered that really nobody had written a, a comprehensive resource, a very clear and cut, like, do this, do this, do this. And that gets you 80% of the way there. I, I, I have been whining about the lack of that comprehensive guide for years now. And I've, I've been sort of repeatedly begging on Twitter for someone who actually knows what they're doing to sit down and write and publish that guide. And you know, I can think of two people whose knowledge I think is good enough that they could do it. Uh, Jason Miller, um, developer of Preact and a bunch of other tools, uh, who's written a number of articles for you know, like uh, previously for Google uh, about how to you know at least at a minimum publish modern JavaScript syntax. He didn't he didn't talk about file formats and stuff so much, but he he at least has written some articles about how to you know, publish like ES 2017 compatible syntax instead of ES5 compatible syntax. Um, and then Matush Brzezinski, um, whose handle is uh, Anderist Rake, um, knows a lot about the ins and outs of build tools and runtimes and package configurations. And so like, I've sort of been hoping that one of them would do it. Uh, I know that Matush doesn't like writing articles. He'll happily reply to, you know, Twitter threads and GitHub issues but he's not a, a writing type of person. And, you know, Jason's busy with whatever he, he's doing at, I think, Shopify now. Um, but yeah, like in general, it feels like it's a very wild, wild west type of environment. And everybody is just sort of copy pasting bits and pieces of examples from everyone else and hoping that it works right. That's what struck me is you, when you sort of opined publicly, why does nobody write this article? I mean, we have we have libraries out there being used by many, many, many millions of developers. How can nobody write this? And I think one of the replies, I wish I could remember exactly who it was from, was something to the effect of, because we're all just looking at each other's package JSONs and copying what each other are doing. It's just a yeah. giant telephone game where we all just copy off of each other's work. And I, I just found that to be so fascinating because it's such an integral part of the ecosystem. And there kind of is nobody at the wheel. Like everyone's just sort of doing the best they can. I mean, the, the NPM ecosystem itself has evolved drastically over time. You know, I, you know, 
as far as I know, the initial intent was just literally, here's a way to publish packages for use under Node. And then it essentially got hijacked by the front end half of the ecosystem. It's like, hey, here's a JavaScript package distribution mechanism. Let's start publishing front end packages. And so you had front end packages being delivered, but the tools themselves are running under Node. There is a whole bunch of Node conventions that existed. And then you run into all the, uh, you know, all the complexities around, you know, I'm, I'm writing code in ES 2015 syntax. Maybe I'm writing it with TypeScript and having to transpile that away, but it's got to run in IE 11. I don't know what my application, what some application developer is going to have their build tools configure as build tools normally don't run any transpilation steps on node modules anyway, because applications have no idea what settings the library was, needs to be built with. And so library authors have to transpile to the lowest common denominator. Application developers just have to have their tools grab whatever artifact it finds by default, and it's sort of the worst of both worlds. You know, it's interesting that that we started here. I thought we'd get here eventually, but to me, when I was thinking about that exact dynamic, I was thinking about this balance. We often have this conversation about developer experience versus user experience. And that comes up with the discussions of frameworks all the time. But what I thought about that is that we have this like interesting microcosm of that discussion here, where we have the, this idea of the developer experience of open source library authors and the user experience of the developers who consume these libraries. Mm -hmm. And we really have built an ecosystem that purports to, or at least tries to convince developers is in, is that it's maximized for their experience and that like whatever you're building, wherever you're building it, just NPM install or whatever tool you're using and a library appears and it's usable. And that really, that doesn't, that trade-up doesn't come for free. It really does come on the back of developer experience on the people that are making libraries. And mm. I'm curious your thought going through this process, because I'm sure when you started with Redux, you probably didn't anticipate that this was going to be a big part <laughs> of your maintenance schedule. Like what, what, what has this done or what does this do to the sort of overall balance of time spent on open source libraries. Like does, mm. has this become now so confusing keeping up with all this matrix matrices of compatibility that like you start losing time to work on features? Like is, is, are we, oh, is, is it going way too far yeah. that way? Mm -hmm. Um, and multiple different thoughts here. One is that I've always insisted I'm not a, a very big fan of spending time working on build tooling configuration <laughs> and CI setups, yet I've spent a disturbing amount of my career, both day job and otherwise, doing this. So I'm, I'm unfortunately maybe not an expert expert, but reasonably experienced, despite not really wanting to be. I can think of a few other tools that fall under that category. Um, in terms of like maintainer time, there's a whole bunch of different stuff that I do. There's, I mean, the obvious one people think of is, okay, I am I am writing new features, I am fixing bugs. That's actually a very, very small fraction of my, my actual time as a maintainer. Um, I've spent far more time answering questions across you know, half a dozen social media sites, uh, trying to work on documentation, wrangling issues, um, you know, as a number of people have pointed out, uh, being a maintainer, at least in a in in today's world, involves a whole lot of developer relations work. Mm -hmm. um, to the point that I probably am more of a devrel of the library unintentionally than I am an actual developer, per se. Um, and the the flip side of that is that, you know, if you look at what we've spent time on doing active code-related maintenance of the library over the last three-plus years, we published Redux Toolkit 1.0 in October 2019. And the lead-up to that... Is it really was, that long ago already? It's, it's oh, been what four, is time? It's been four <laughs> years. Wow. Um, which means, actually, that Redux Toolkit has now been out for half of Redux's existence, mathematically, because it released the original release in summer of 2015. Um, the lead up to 1.0 was primarily about fleshing out the features and the API that we wanted included. So that was all very code focused. 
I'd gotten the initial package set up done somewhere in the alpha process, and then that just kind of stuck around. Um, for Redux Toolkit specifically, the only time we actually made tweaks to the build process really was prior to RTK 1.6, two things happened. Uh, one, we merged in the RTK query data fetching library. Uh, the early alphas of that had been published as a temporary standalone package just for iteration purposes. We knew we wanted to include that in the Redux Toolkit package so that you didn't have to install anything else, but it needed to be in there as a separate set of entry points. And so we had to modify the build step to now look at three separate entry points, the, the Redux Toolkit core with configure store, create slice, all the, just the core generic APIs, uh, RTK query core, which is the data fetching logic with no UI integration, and then RTK query plus React, which is the entry point that also has all the, the built-in React hook generation. So we had to expand the build process to generate three sets of build artifacts, you know, all the same file formats, but now multiplied across each entry point. And that was going to take a lot more time to build. The original build setup, I think, was still using some roll-up plus Babel combination that we'd copy-pasted from the other Redux libraries. But now you're generating three times as many build artifacts. And I, as a maintainer who has to hit the build button re repeatedly, wanted that to go faster. And so we got an outside contribution of a homegrown ES build driver script that would use ES build for most of the, of the you know, generating the build artifacts. So we added the three entry points, we switched to using ES build in, in RTK 1.6. Um, that was two years ago now. And so RTK's build setup had stayed stable until the start of this year. And it was only, because I decided that it was time to actually do all this modernization work, which was going to require major versions semantically, um, that it actually led into all this work. Like if I was still just focusing on, you know, we're going to publish 1.10, 1.11, 1.12 with some kind of new features, I wouldn't have even had to have di you know, dived into all this. And I'm hopeful that once I finally get this wave of major versions across all our libraries done, that I won't have to mess with it again for years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't want to be the one to tell you. So uh, yeah, absolutely, Mark. Um, you know, one of the things that you had to deal with that ever that a lot of people have to deal with is this difference in sort of the CJS common JS format and the ES modules ESM format and. Mm -hmm. This was super interesting to read in your blog post um, that, you know, maybe I didn't introduce that at the head of this because we got in right into the topic mm -hmm. that you, you, you culminated your feed, your learnings in doing this process on Redux into a blog post, which we'll link in the show notes if anybody hasn't mm -hmm. read it yet. Uh, it's a, an amazing resource uh, along the lines of the things that we're talking about. But one of the things that was interesting is this difference between the, the CGS and the ESM. And my understanding of the approach was what I believed your understanding of the approach was, and maybe a lot of people's, is that we have been on a long path towards moving away from CJS and moving towards ESM, just sort of across the entire ecosystem of Node. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that struck out to me, stood out to me, was the, the article that you linked to from Bun who, you know, I, I was going to talk to you about this idea that everybody on Twitter was like, oh, Bun's going to solve the CJS, you know, uh, yeah. MJS sort of war. And then, but you also linked to a blog article where they said, CJS not only needs to exist for compatibility reasons, it's valuable as a format on its own merits due to mm -hmm. speed and performance implications. So we'll preserve it moving forward. What did reading that mean to you <laughs> as a library author that was maybe hoping we were moving um, past this? And does that change how people should be approaching this when they're considering how to deploy things? 
it didn't necessarily impact me a lot. It was more just that, you know, I was doing my usual thing where I, I read lots of articles and stuff anyway. And so I was just very struck by seeing these two diametrically opposed articles coming out within a day or two of each other intentionally. The um, So Dino had published a post saying CJS is holding back the JavaScript ecosystem die. And <laughs> the bun author came back a day or two later and said, no, actually, CJS is not only going to be around for a while, it still has technical merits. Um, but like that came out well past the problem where I'd done a lot of the work already, so it didn't have any particular influence. Uh, but I did think it's very interesting to look at both the technical and like emotional stances that are involved mm -hmm. there. Um, mm -hmm. One thing I've actually been realizing a little bit through this process is that it's hard for me even right now to articulate the list of reasons why we should be using ESM and how ESM is in theory an upgrade. Um, like the best reason I can reasons I can list off the top of my head are that ESM is statically analyzable and therefore mm -hmm. it for the most part makes tree shaking easier. And then, of course, we we at least like the syntax of import-export as opposed to module.exports.somefunction equals whatever. Um, but I'm still a little hard-pressed to give more technical benefits out of it. And the flip side is that you know ESM, even as a technical format, does have a couple weaknesses. Um, the one of the biggest ones I've run into is that you can't synchronously import something in the middle of an ESM file. In CommonJS, you just throw a require anywhere you want. You know, Normally, it's at the top of your file, and it runs immediately on initialization. But you can throw a require down deep in a nested function. And because require takes an arbitrary string, that can be totally dynamic. And you know you're looking up arbitrary other files at runtime, which also means technically speaking, and this is something I re-realized reading someone's article the other day, you can actually, in essence, lazy load other files in CJS just by sticking the require down deeper in the call tree. So maybe you export a function that says, you know, here's your init function, and you only import the real heavyweight file inside the init function when someone calls it instead right. of at the top. Whereas with ESM, you've got to have your import uh, syntax at the top level. There is the import function, which you can call anywhere, but that's async. And let me give a specific example of where the like we're missing a piece. Um, in Redux Toolkit, we have some development mode middleware that we automatically add to the Redux store to check for certain mistakes like accidental mutations. And we only want those middleware to be turned on in a development mode build, but they have to be available synchronously as the store is being constructed. Because if you mm. look at the normal process, it's you know your index file imports the store file, the store file has imported configure store and called it. That whole call graph is synchronous. And so the development mode middleware need to be available synchronously, but that also means that they're now, in theory, polluting up a production mode bundle. And ideally, I would have liked to have had a condition inside of some of the setup code that says, if this is development mode, import the other middleware file. Otherwise, we know it's being left out. But you can't do that. And so we, at one point, we're doing some very stupid shenanigans with like search and replaces and build steps just to try to cut out the import statement entirely. Um, I've seen a proposal for some kind of a, a, a synchronous import in ESM. Uh, I don't have the link right right off the top of my head. I, I know I was seeing it a couple of days ago. Uh, I think it was possibly one of the original CJS authors. Actually, one of the CJS author, authors, Chris Cowell, 
I believe, is working on that. And now I know where I can dig up that link. Um, all that to say that ESM has some value, but I think a lot of people look at ESM and they automatically say, well, this is newer and therefore it is inherently a better format technically, but there's some hand wavy assumptions where, well, okay, it has some advantages, but also some disadvantages and CJS has some disadvantages, but also some advantages. And it's maybe not as clear cut a upgrade as some people are, are telling us it is. That's interesting. And I mean, if I'm understanding the process and correct me if I'm wrong here, but that, you know, it, it sounds like the way that you've supported, at least, a, at least if we can cut out a portion of what you've changed to support kind of just the CJS, MJS piece, the, the ESM mm -hmm. piece, that you have TS files, like that's what you develop in. So you have mm -hmm. your TS files, and then you need to have a compilation step, which is going to turn those into JS files. Mm -hmm. But then you have a further step, uh, a modification step that's going to produce then a CJS version and an MJS version of this. Is this accurate? So that you can support yeah. two different formats mm -hmm. appropriately. Right. And and, th and this also gets into further questions. Like, should the, should the build artifacts that you're publishing that have to be .js files in some form, like you can't publish the TS code and expect it to run, should they be... Not in Node anyways. Right, but <laughs> individual .js files that one-to-one -one map to the original source files, or should you be pre-bundling all of the source files that make up your library into a single bundled art and file and then you know multiplied by however many subformats um and you know that's that's another thing that you know no one is really giving guidance on i ended yeah, up settling I... on pre-bundling specifically for redux toolkit um both because it made some deployment aspects easier, but also, you know, one of the quirks of trying to use ESM, especially under Node, is that you have to add a .js extension in your import statements. And I'm still a little hazy on when that comes into play. Um, but that also means, and this is where it really gets bizarre, your .ts files have to refer to each other with a .js extension in the import because the TypeScript team doesn't want to rewrite those. Oh, right, right. And, no, and right, there's yes. A, there's a massive argument over in the TS repo about what the actual behavior should be there. And so in order to sidestep, well, like if I have multiple individual .js files that I'm publishing, I would have to insert the .js extension everywhere for the ESM builds. I, and I, I just didn't want to deal with that. <laughs> So what does like a perfect world, right? You know, we, we often sometimes like to joke if we could snap our fingers and make it the way yeah. we want it to be. Yeah. Is it, you know, like, let's assume that CJS can't go away for, for the reasons that the Bun team says that it, that is valuable. Like, is the idea just that, hey, let me write my code in whichever format I want. And it just runs alongside CJS or ESM or whatever other format that comes out in the future. Like, is, is that the ultimate goal so that you stop having to be responsible for when people invite you into their sort of bespoke setup, whatever it is, mm -hmm. is, is but that you just say, hey, listen, I, I wrote myself this way and it's up to these environments to create ways that, that can run these different formats. Like, is, is that your dream or, or is that too far the other way? Like, do you have a sense of what an, a best case scenario is in the future for, for you and other library the, maintainers? The immediate best case scenario and, and the most plausible one is that someone does actually write that comprehensive guide I've been begging for that says, <laughs> here, here are all the file formats you should include, or at least here are all the various combinations of output you could have and here's the implications of each one and here's what the file formats and the package json settings need to look like to accomplish like combination a b or c and then along with that having tooling for libraries that automatically spits out everything with the proper combinations um like mm -hmm. if we can't actually solve the question of you know should you be including CJS versus ESM? 
it at least needs to be a whole lot easier to output valid combinations. Yeah, that's that's interesting, right? I mean, we had that for a long time with like our babbles, right? I mean, you're like, oh, make it so that it runs on this many percentages or this many mm -hmm. of the last versions of whatever software is and, and it adds in those kind of things. But, you know, the part that gets me the complicated part, you know, and we can go as deep into this or not deep in this as you'd like to. I know you've talked about a lot about Oh, I'll happily go deep. <laughs> it's like with React server components, this threw like another wrench in it because mm -hmm. it sounds like now you know, and this isn't necessarily final, but at least in some of the current stages of things, some of the things that you were doing to support this matrix of different uh, file types maybe needs to be changed now to support the React server components piece, which maybe has trade-offs. So like you fix mm. one a little bit more to break one a little bit. Yeah. And like, oh, now it doesn't work for Node 16, but now it works here. And it's like, and that kind of plays against that idea of there being like a tool that could output this to you because we just, this combinatorial problem keeps it's you know retreating from us i guess in some sense mm -hmm. and so you know, how did how do you see that because i mean some people are like oh yeah cjs umd if people are old enough esm mm -hmm. you know they're like okay I, I get that just support that format how hard can this really be but really adding in like bun and dino and node and react server components is is like more dimensions of complexity of this yeah. compatibility yeah. matrix can you let people into a little bit what kind of why that is yeah so you know, if we if we go back to the original tweet that I put out back in April, um, let's I'll, I'll even bring it up here to read it out. Things I have to keep in mind when publishing a library in 2023: build artifact formats (ESM, CJS, UND) matrixed with dev, production, various other node end values, bundled or individual JS per source, export setups, Webpack for limits, TS module resolution options, user environments, behavior differences between bundlers node in ESM versus CJS modes. How do you deliver your TS type defs? What about edge runtimes and now reacts use client and server components stuff. And if you've got dependencies upstream, you got to worry about those too. So the, the additional wrench in the whole system that we ran into. Um, so next 13.4 came out with the first production version of server components. The next team and the React team both declared that production ready, and they switched over all the defaults of Next so that if you just hit enter a few times, it defaults you to creating a server components based setup. And they've got you know they've got decent documentation on you know here's how you write your first server component and, and all that stuff, but there was really no work done to communicate this to the ecosystem or talk about the downstream effects on libraries. And you know, I, I get that the React team, despite having a couple pretty major companies behind it, is relatively small and doesn't have a lot of person, a surprisingly small number of people on both yeah, the meta yeah, and versus. It, it would surprise most people, I think. <laughs> yeah. So like I'm not blaming them per se, but I, I also feel very safe in saying it's not a thing that they spent any time thinking about or coming up with a strategy for. And so we saw multiple issues happen. One is that people wanted to use Redux with Next apps. They had followed, you know, various random guides for, you know, you drop your React Redux provider and you create a Redux store and you add your libraries and it works. Except that when you do it with the, the app router directory, it doesn't or at least mm. not unless you're very careful about how you arrange the component files. And so we suddenly started getting people filing issues against Redux Toolkit and React Redux saying, I'm just trying to use Redux with Next and it doesn't work. And after multiple hours of back and forths and asking for more details, it would turn out that you know, you've, you've tried to render the provider in a server component file and you know, context doesn't exist. It throws an error if you call create context, which happens when you import provider. Um, hooks don't exist. And in fact, the React, the React slash next teams have been locking things down and adding more static analysis. Like you can't use hooks in a server component. Therefore, they've been trying to do static analysis that analysis that errors if it detects that you're importing a hook into mm. a server component. But that in turn starts to lock out cases where you might have mixed mode 
code. Sure. Right. So for example, I wouldn't have run that hook, yeah, but it's yeah. there. Yeah. Like, like specifically with both Apollo and Redux toolkit and RTK query, uh, we both have chunks of code that include React hooks, but also include the core non-UI specific pieces of the library simultaneously. So for example, I could import the React specific version of RTK queries create API, create the API endpoint object, and I could use that in a server side environment and dispatch the actions to do the data fetching, not actually use the hooks that are attached to it. And then I could use that exact same object as imported on the client side and use the hooks in a component to fetch the data. And that's valid until React server components and the React team decided, no, it's not because we detect you're using React hooks and we're not gonna let you do that. So there was, there was an initial issue where it, it was technically a bug in a next Canary version broke Apollo. And then they fixed the bug, but then the follow-on discussion from that made it sound like, well, technically this one was a bug, but this is actually kind of the direction we're intending to go. And yeah. there's then this ongoing game of whack-a-mole where my, you know, the Apollo team, including my, my, my Redux co-maintainer, Lynn Zwebber, who works on Apollo for his day job, keep having to come up with more and more outlandish workarounds just to try to keep the, the, you know, the library code from exploding. And then the React team proceeds to lock something else down and boom, that, that approach is gone. And like, I'm not blaming the React team per se, because I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to prevent people from doing what they see as potential mistakes, but it's also locking down valid code paths. And so the React team's suggestion, getting back to the build setup, one of the features of the exports field in package.json is this idea of conditions. In essence, it's almost like its own little conditional programming language in the form of fields in a JavaScript object in package.json. Um, so the basic one is just, here's a file path. And when someone tries to import from that file path, here's the possible file that the system should look up and load. But you can add conditions where you can say, you know, in, in development, look up file A, in production, look up file B, or if it's common JS, look up this file. If it's ESM, look up a different file, but you can have arbitrary other conditions. And so the React team has invented a brand new condition called, I think it's just React server. And so the idea is your package could, in, if you want to, generate another entry point that has code specifically customized for use in a React server components environment. And so what they said libraries should do is have another build artifact that strips out all the client side code like React hooks and only has code that is safe to use in a server components environment. Okay, that is technically feasible, except that Apollo is still not using package exports for any of their libraries. So that would be a have to be a major version revision right there, plus a lot of effort. Um, plus the burden is now on us library maintainers to make more changes to our build setup to figure out what pieces we have to strip out to make them safe and generate the right build artifacts. And thus, as you said, making like multiplying the number of dimensions of pain that we have to deal with. And, and what's interesting about this is that I, I would contend that even though there are maybe workarounds, there's no way to keep on top of them as they, no, as all of them no. shift. And so essentially where we've arrived at is that there actually is no way to make something perfectly feasible and compatible in any environment in which you could execute it, that JavaScript can run in it. Mm -hmm. That's what, what is interesting to me about that then is that it creates an idea that it's not about having perfect backwards compatibility, but rather how widely you choose to respect mm. this as a library author. And 
What struck me in your blog post was very early on, you said, as a package maintainer, I want to make sure that my libraries are maximally compatible and usable mm -hmm. for the widest array of environments. So much so that later in the article, it seemed like with great pain, you finally had to get rid of UMD format. <laughs> and yes. we won't necessarily go into what that is or why that's important, but just just know that for other people, that was not as hard of a decision to make <laughs> mm -hmm. as, it, as it sounded like it was uh, for, for you, Mark. And And what's curious about this is like, can you talk about why that mantra is important to you? And we can talk about maybe some other notable examples, obviously the mm -hmm. React team, the next team being one of them, where there is a different impression on this. That's kind of like, you know, I'm just going to cut off a certain subset of users. And if, you know, if that means you got to change your system to keep using me, then you got to change your system mm -hmm. to keep using me. Like explain why this mantra is important to you as a, as a maintainer. Sure. <sighs> Being like being an open source maintainer, especially for a library as widely used as Redux, is a choice. No one sat down and forced me to do this. If if you read my history, I fell into it by accident. Um, no one is sitting around forcing me to spend time working on any of this. It's all a whole lot of self-imposed responsibility, which is its own set of problems because I've imposed way too many self self-responsibilities on, on, on me about this over the years. Um, but having said all that, it is a set of responsibilities that I take very, very seriously. Um, I, I've always been you know, a very conscientious type of individual. It's a core part of my personality. And you know, when I say I'm going to do something, I take it very seriously and I do it to the best of my ability. So having taken on the role of Redux maintainer, like I am physically not capable of doing a bad job of it. Like I'm gonna make mistakes, but it's gonna be because I was honestly trying to do it the right way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's there's plenty of people who have made other decisions about how compatible they want to make their libraries. Um, the most visible one would be Sindri Sorhus, the prolific Node package author who yep. years ago already made the decision, everything that I publish is gonna be ESM only because it is the simplest thing for me to deal with. I don't have to mess with any of the packaging stuff. I'm just gonna publish one format and it works. And if you don't like it, use the previous major release of my libraries. And that's made his life easier. It's also made things a lot more difficult for a lot of consumers, uh, myself okay. included. I've, I've run into that problem with a number of his packages. Um, and I, I respect and I understand the mindset behind that. Um, my mindset is if someone chooses to install Redux, whatever the environment, my, just my goal is I want it to work out of the box for them. I don't want them to have to, I don't want them to have to think about any of these different things. It's just, I install Redux, I import it and it just works across whatever tool I happen to be using. And that does mean that I'm the one who set myself up for a lot of these issues. And if I were willing to settle for less, my life would probably be a lot simpler. But as a personal choice, if I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do it what I think is the right way so that, okay, yeah, this has been a painful year for me, but it simplifies things for everybody else and it's a net benefit for the world. Well, let me tell you, it's been nice. I mean, I, I, I have worked on a number of lit element. So web component projects that actually use Redux quite extensively because it just isn't mm -hmm. a lot of other great global state things. So it really comes up a lot in that scenario. So, I, you know, your work is certainly bearing fruit in that regard. And that is maybe a cool part of that approach is that you do get access to people. I'm sure that come to you and say, you won't believe where I put Redux now. <laughs> and you're like, mm -hmm. wow, I'm really cool that, that that worked for you. One of the very nice things about going to conferences is that I get to, I get to run into a lot of people who are working in companies I've never heard of, on projects I've never heard of, and they're telling me, you know, like, and they might even be kind of relatively average projects, but you know, telling me, and we, we use Redux, Redux Toolkit, like we love it, it works great for us. It's a very, very refreshing antidote to the the ongoing arguments online. That's true. That is true. I, conferences, I mean, we've said that a few times on this podcast that uh, conferences, especially since COVID, I mean, they've always been amazing, but especially mm. since COVID, uh, 
the conference energy you come back with is just can carry you for a while. Um, I, I actually have, great. I mean, a, a flat out example of that. So I took a vacation in July, which was much needed. And I got back from that. And like the first day or so, my mind actually pretty much balked at the idea of any responsibilities at all, either day job stuff or especially Redux stuff. And I did come close to burning out in 2018, again, due to way too many self-imposed responsibilities. And I had to be very intentional about cutting back on a lot of the stuff I was doing so that I could keep doing the maintainer pieces I wanted to. And I think I'd kind of let the, the amount of stuff I was doing creep back up over the years without really noticing it and having a couple weeks of not having any of that stuff on my mind and kind of reset the level so that when I got back from vacation, I'm like, wait a minute, this, this doesn't feel right. Um, so I'd actually kind of intentionally said, I'm not going to do any Redux maintainer stuff for the entire month of August just to give myself some time to decompress. And then I went to React Rally in the middle of the month, had a great time talking to people, came back totally energized, and spent like the, the next week diving back into Redux stuff because I genuinely was excited and wanted to work on these things. That's awesome. Um, it, it, it just, it really is true. I've never been more enthused for side projects, even with people like you get in conversations with people like, we should, we should talk, we should collaborate on that. Mm -hmm. And then you come back and then you have volunteered to do too many things again. And this is just a vicious cycle. Yeah. So maybe don't go to conferences. That's what you've learned. Here. You're <laughs> going to get too excited. You're going to do too much. Um, you know, but I want to keep going on this topic though of compatibility because I think it's been a broader conversation in the community and it's come up again now with the announcement and the release of Bun mm -hmm. is, you know, uh, we've both been around since, since Smushgate. Um, and mm -hmm. there are other examples since then for anybody that doesn't know, it's just an example of a, a new feature that came out that, um, that people had requested that collided with like an old library implementation of, of the same name. And so there was a big controversy over what to name this thing. And one of the mantras of the web in general and the platform in general is just to, to never break. Um, if you put it on the web, it generally speaking, will continue to work that way moving forward, at least from the platform style. Permanent backwards compatibility. Right, which is both admirable and impossible and mm. infuriating and amazing at the same time. Um, and, you know, Bun sort of spoke to this a little bit too. And I think the Node team came out and spoke to this a little bit and said, listen, we have a humongous ecosystem of apps that we have to continue to support moving forward. We have to be very deliberate and very intentional with how we manipulate and evolve this platform. And, mm -hmm. and Bun to some extent said, yes, but I'm going to take the decisions you made and I'm going to make a different set of initial condition, different decisions, and I'm just going to support this subset. You know, maybe I'll support more of it in the future, but for now, this is what I think is important. Do you have a take or a thought on these competing philosophies? I mean, I'm not telling you to pick a winner or a loser here, but mm -hmm. just kind of like in your head, because it feels like this bounces off that idea too, like... You know, as developers, we often are like, God, I just wish we could just break some of these ancient websites so we could get some of these features finally. But, you know, it does come at a cost. And so we we are paying this whether we want to or not, the, the slower evolution of our platform and like, you know, even the whole CGS to ESM transition is is greatly slowed down just because we, we won't leave people behind. Mm -hmm. um, you know, have you had any more thoughts on, on this sort of debate as you've been going through this process? There, there are... There are so many different competing perspectives and incentives across all facets of this topic. Um, I mean, like a lot of the a lot of the problems and pain points we run into now are because new syntax gets proposed and specced and prototyped and eventually standardized, but it needs to be tested out in the real world. People want to use it for real. So we write compilers and transpilers and shims and polyfills to make these things available now. But then those things linger on. So things like, you know, I can I can compile ES module syntax to CJS, but if we export a special little double underscore ES module field, then certain tools will recognize that this should be treated like an ES module and reshape the contents as it gets consumed. Or, you know, the, the node 
you know, whatever node committees have discussed, you know, ESM versus CJS over the years and trying to figure out some kind of a balance between, well, we've, we've already got hard dependencies on CJS as a module format in an ecosystem and runtime loader behavior. ESM has different behavior. How do we reconcile these two? What, what, you know, what techniques are we going to use mm -hmm. to interop between the two? And I haven't sat down and read years <laughs> worth of news of, you know, news group and issue thread discussions. I'm not going to pretend that I can like recite the actual debates back and forth. Um, Node made certain decisions, like smart people made decisions that they thought were best. And I'm sure other people can argue with those decisions. I don't have the knowledge to say here were other alternatives that were proposed. Um, it certainly seems like the outcome in some ways has been less than optimal, um, both in how long it took for Node to come to some decisions and implement mm -hmm. them and what some of the technical choices were. Um, you know, I know, I think one of the constraints was that because CommonJS gets loaded synchronously and ESM can have things now like top level weight, um, you kind of need to know what it is ahead of time so you know how to handle it. Uh, I, I think there was some discussion of like, maybe we do like a first pass parsing effort and we kind of try to guess what the contents are and then maybe fall back if we're not sure. Um, so, I mean, there, there were lots of various alternatives and ideas proposed. And so, yeah, like Node settled on something that was, in essence, relatively conservative. You know, we, we have these two kind of disjoint sets of loading behavior. We're going to try and keep them separate, and we need to know ahead of time as much as possible. It's been very interesting watching the development of Bun, even through just, you know, mm -hmm. Jared Sumner's Twitter account. Um, you know, I, I'm not in their Discord. I haven't like followed on a day-to-day -day basis, but even just watching him tweet about stuff, in addition to all the work done trying to make Bun fast and hyper-optimizing things like you know copying files on Mac versus Windows, mm -hmm. he's clearly spent a lot of time looking at known pain points in developer experience and saying, you know what? I'm just going to throw in a special API in Bun that makes that thing easier to deal with. And it might be very, very bun specific, but I know this is a problem people are running into. I'm gonna build something that helps with that. And so I think there's some simplifications around starting spinning up an HTTP API, um, you know, some things around having like SQLite built in. And I know I've seen like a like a half dozen other, you know, bun dot whatever methods that are specially built in. And apparently one of those decisions is how are we going to deal with CJS versus ESM? We're just going to make them work together as obviously as possible without developers having to think about it. And I think during the Bun 1.0 thread on Hacker News, he wrote a comment where he gave some details about how they handle CJS versus ESM loading. And it's basically like, we're just going to do everything synchronously and quietly interrupt as fast as possible up until the point where you prove that you need like top level weight or something <laughs> and then it'll fall back but like you can even use import and require in the same file and it oh, wow. actually just works and so from that that doesn't help with the library publishing side of things. no but for an application developer who just wants all the libraries they're using to work that's actually pretty nice. There's also that conversation. I mean, I know when I was talking to people about this, they, I think the thing that keeps getting thrown around is the famous XKCD uh, cartoon of like, we have 11 competing standards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We need one that'll unify it all. There are now, you know, mm -hmm. N plus one competing standards. Um, you know, I, I, I hope people listening to this too don't, don't think of this as too much of an intellectual exercise because I think the conversations we're having here today and the, and the impacts that we're discussing and the, the problems that we're facing are the problems that honestly, and even a lot of application teams face. If you have a public facing API or you have a feature that you're planning to remove that a lot of you or an interaction in your software that you're gonna remove that a lot of your users in the wild are using every day to get their business done, 
you are having these conversations and they should not be taken lightly um, mm -hmm. because your users will be having the same problems that Mark is experiencing as a library author or that any of you are experiencing trying to use Redux in Next. Um, and I think that's why this conversation is so interesting. These are universal challenges mm -hmm. just applied in a very uh, you know, high stakes in a very interesting department in the open source world. One of my one of my favorite quotes is something called Hiram's Law, apparently named after a Google engineer, which is like any observable behavior of a system will eventually be depended on by somebody, <laughs> even if it's not a defined part of your public API. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And we've I, I can think of examples where that was true with React Redux. Uh, we shifted internal implementations from version five to version six in, in a couple of different ways. We went from old React context to new React context in version six, which ended up being a failed, a very flawed design that I take responsibility for, um, had technical differences in the way that the Redux store value got passed down and mm -hmm. turned out that there were a number of of packages and applications that depended on the previous behavior in order to do things like dynamically loading reducers at runtime in the constructor of a class component or something mm -hmm. that suddenly no longer worked when version six came out and happened to do things a little bit differently. Um, we never talked about any of that stuff that was not listed as part of our public API design, but it's how the system worked. So people relied on it. And I am even guilty of that myself. Mm -hmm. um, my day job is at Replay.io, which plug, we're building a time-traveling debugger for JavaScript applications. And it's very cool. Oh, I, I will happily talk about this for hours, so I'll <laughs> keep this short. Um, a lot of this last eight to nine months, I've been building new features that do analysis of the recorded code in order to extract useful information. Things like, we know a quick event happened. Let's try to find the react on click prop attached to your button that is probably the handler that ran and open up the source file paused at that line in time and this was only possible because it turns out that react attaches a copy of the props to the dom node object every time it renders a dom node okay so if you've got a button or a div or a span it's going to add it to the page and it's going to say like div bracket super secret react field equals props. And through some analysis work, I can go from, I can like find the top level JavaScript event listener, look at event.target, which is the DOM node. Look at that to see if it has props. If not the parent, the ancestor, the, you know, all the way up the tree. And that wouldn't work unless react did this one little bit of behavior that is absolutely not documented in any way shape or form um, <laughs> but it's something that's there and it's been going on long enough that i can rely on it um so it's always that double-edged sword of i as someone outside of the tool just want to make the thing work and i will do whatever i can with whatever knobs are available to me to make that cooperate and of course, the library authors are over there saying, but, but we, we, we didn't say you could do that. That could change at any time. And, and so it's interesting being on both sides of this divide where one minute I'm a library author saying that's undocumented. You shouldn't be doing that. And then <laughs> in my day job, I'm like, what are all the knobs and hidden features that I can play with to build this cool new toy? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I laugh and people should reach out on Twitter and let me know if you've had any experiences of doing this. Because I feel like so many people, if you've been around long enough, you've done this. I mean, I used to be a c-sharp.net developer using WPF. And I remember we did something where like when the, 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 the object for the class would get bound to the code or the code behind would get bound to the actual like mm -hmm. view, something would happen. And, and we didn't realize that this behavior relied on was undocumented. And so we had a, just a normal .net version upgrade and it said there are no breaking changes. So we just sort mm -hmm. of went, okay, apply it, ship it, good. And then the client called us angry because everything was crashing. And they're like, how could you possibly do this? We're like, what do you mean? We didn't we didn't change anything <laughs> and uh, come to find out that that was undocumented behaviors that they didn't think was a breaking change because it wasn't documented. So mm -hmm. why should we have to, it's not breaking, um, but it was breaking for us. <laughs> yep. And uh, 
I think, you know, even if you're, if, even if you're not trying to build, if you're not trying to reach in and pull out the internals, you will incidentally do this at least once and then be very mm. sad if it goes away because you've suddenly built a, an entire mountain on top of this feature. Been there, done that. <laughs> now, to, to finish us off here, you know, I think certainly the feedback for your blog and, and the conversation topic has been... Um, people seem to have taken to it very, very well. I mean, it's gotten a lot of positive feedback, a lot of people just plus one in it all across the board, especially mm -hmm. open source awesome, open source authors coming out of the woodwork to say, yes, oh, this is our pain too. Um, is there any part of the feedback that's either surprised you or anything that you've learned now as people have started to digest your words that that kind of you're like, I wish you'd been here a couple months ago? Um, I mean, I, I, I was saying this before we got started. I, I actually have been genuinely surprised at the amount of feedback I've gotten and how universally positive it's been. Um, to a large extent, I was writing the post just to get the information out there. I figured some people would read it. I didn't figure it would have a very wide audience. I didn't figure a lot of people would be interested in it. And it's never gonna be as popular as like my React rendering behavior post, but it's gotten heavily passed around. It showed up in multiple newsletters. Um, a number of people have pinged me and said, oh yeah, this was making the rounds in our internal Slack. Um, oh, I've, I've had multiple podcasts like this. Like, I genuinely surprised at how much fee positive feedback it's got. Um, uh, I mean, the, the one thing I can say that I learned is um, uh, just like a day or two ago, uh, I mentioned him earlier, I think Chris Cole, one of the author people who created the actual CJS file format to begin with, uh, actually pinged me and said, yeah, you made this comment about it, CJS having been designed for uh, Node to begin with. That's not actually the case. And proceeded to link me to some articles and writing that gave more details on the background and said, you know, it was actually being designed for a, a few different scenarios and, you know, some, some of the background on it. So that I learned, and I, I actually need to update my post to link to that article or, or discussion as one of the resources because, hey, DIL. Well, I, I love that um, perhaps you didn't expect when you started your development career that you'd be the sort of the, 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 the king of state management and Redux and then later become the uh, king of package, uh, you know, pa library packaging and, and file management. Sometimes that's just it's, how our that, careers that, go. We don't get to one, pick. That one is a title I would honestly really rather not have. <laughs> um, at, at, a, at a prior job, we, we used a static analysis tool called Fortify that could find both actual bugs and potential security flaws. And it was really, really good at parsing and analyzing the code, but it also had a lot of weird quirks in how you configured the actual command line tool to do the scanning and um, like how it tracked the data flow through certain functions such that if you happen to like refactor the code to a certain extent, it might find the exact same problem again, even though you'd marked the previous one as not an issue just because the call sequence had changed enough. And over multiple years of messing with that tool, I very unfortunately became an expert on how it worked and how to use it and work, work around it in a lot of cases. Um, I feel much the same way here. This is never a topic I wanted to learn much about. Uh, I have not read anything about this out of pure interest. It's solely been, <laughs> look, I, I just want to make my package work for people. And I've had to put in a bunch of time and effort to it, like educate myself the hard way in order to try to achieve that goal. Well, as a fellow person who has never seen a letter of text in my tab titles in my browsers, I certainly hope it was satisfying for you when you got to finally close all 175 of those tabs. They are uh, still technically open in a in a secondary <laughs> window. I still need to do something about those. <laughs> okay. Well, that's going to be it for us today. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this Modern Web Podcast. And thank you to our guest, Mark. As always, the conversation does not stop here. You can find Mark on Twitter at Ace Mark, that's A-C-E-M-A-R-K-E. -E, and you can find me online at RoboCell. As for the podcast, you can find us online at moderndotweb.com or on Twitter at modern.web. Thanks you again to our sponsor, This.Labs. This.Labs would like us to conclude by reminding you, 
Trusted by top names like Meta, Google, and T-Mobile, this.labs helps bridge the gap from business requirements to tech implementation. Whether you're modernizing legacy systems, ensuring sustainable application architecture, or seeking expert guidance, this.labs has the experience to help. Discover more at this.co. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot C-O. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Mark. See you all next time. This podcast is sponsored by This.Labs, a framework agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this.co slash labs. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot C-O slash labs. For all of your friends and you. Shout it, yeah! Queries do, so come on, let's go, cause we got a show for you.